0: mark Graven and jamie flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas experiences and news let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions it's time for lean whiskey lean talk with a fun spirit
1: Welcome to episode 33 of Lean Whiskey. Um, This is uh, our our back to normal, but not really episode. Uh, This is Jamie (laughs) Flinchball here with Mark Rabin. And, uh, you know, some things are back to normal, but uh, there's there's no video this time. But we are doing our first ever in-person podcast. Hey, Jamie. I mean,
0: like I'm looking across the table at Jamie instead of looking through Zoom.
1: It, it, it's it's a little weird, but in, in the end, this is where it started, right? This was you know you and me going out for a whiskey and talking shop, and then saying, "Hey, why don't we record?" We this? should have recorded that, right? Or, and so this yeah. is sort of full circle. It's 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 where we started. So um, yeah, so we're we're taking advantage of of the opportunity that you're nearby in in Philadelphia on the road again. That's the one sort of back
0: to normal. Uh, I started. Back on the road consulting two weeks a month in February. I've been coming here to Philadelphia, and, and you live what, how far away?
1: Uh, it depends on what time <laughs> of day it is, so anywhere from an hour and 15 to two hours. As Philadelphia says, there's only so many ways to get in and out of Philadelphia. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you made it here, and
0: I, I, I was remembering, I was about to say, I've never done a podcast in person together with somebody, but then it occurred to me the one time I actually held a little recorder in front of somebody in person was, uh, Stephen Covey, the wow. Stephen Covey at a Shingo conference. Wow. When the Shingo Institute arranged the opportunity for me to talk with him and it, it was pre iPhone. So I had like a separate little recorder
1: little hand recorder. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, I remember, yeah, I had a hand recorder. I had a, I had a tape one tape? Yeah. and I had a digital one and I can't remember, you know, I think I just used them for voice notes, but, uh, Recording lectures in college? I, I don't know. I don't think I did that because um, I'm an, I'm not a very good auditory learner, so I don't think I, that would have worked for me anyway. So I think it was just for myself to make, you know, usually while driving. I'm guessing, yeah. you know, make make some audio notes, which interestingly I don't do anymore, even even with as easy as it is with a phone. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah. So for, first in in person, which uh, yeah. Also makes it, you know, easier to do some other things, like share share some whiskey, and we'll, we'll come to that in a bit, but um, yeah, so, so you know, how far, you know, Philly's, I'll say an hour and a half, we'll just average it out for me, um, yeah. so how far did you have to come to get here?
0: It was about an hour and a half flight from Cincinnati, and that's, that's sort of, that's a new departure spot for me.
1: Yep, so that's new since our, our last episode of Lean Whiskey, and you used to... You're 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 always a man of two cities. <laughs> yeah, it, it, when we started the
0: podcast, it was Orlando and DFW. Yep, and then it shifted uh, just over two years ago to being DFW and Los Angeles. So it was for my wife's job, and then she just recently started a new job, new company, great opportunity for her, based in Cincinnati. So we're still in the midst of. Relocating, so on the road has its meaning from that. Like we drove uh, across four different days from first off Los Angeles to the Dallas Fort Worth area, and then from the Dallas area to Cincinnati. So we had a lot of time in the car listening to the podcast. We actually listened to Art Burns' audio book. A lot of our hmm. listeners might know his yep. book on um, Lean Enterprise, Lean Transformation. I forget right. the exact name, but it wasn't yeah. it wasn't Art Burns' voice. It was the narrator, but. Um, so we listened to that. We talked about that. Um related to her work and company too. It was recommended to her. So there we were driving along, listening and, and talking lean.
1: Nice. Well, um, or, or bad or, or
0: nice, awful. No, it was nice.
1: Yeah. My, 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 uh, my wife does not talk lean stuff with, with me and, and I, I still pick on her because she hasn't even read my new book. Um, <laughs> you know, she argues she read my old book like three times. As we were, she was one of my editor, one of my many editors, so she doesn't have to read the new one. So, and she's probably good at solving
0: problems. One yeah. of those people who oh. solve people solve problems. The ones she wants to, at least. So, that, so.
1: that's a book plug. That's, Jamie's
0: new book is titled "People Solve Problems." People solve
1: problems, and hopefully, your wife doesn't consider you a problem. Well, yeah. So that's <laughs> probably why it's easy for me to uh, get out of the house and come down to Philadelphia. Um, so, you know, we always have to plan when we plan these episodes, we have to think about where's Mark going to be and what whiskeys do you have? (laughs) What do you you have in which location while we pick a theme, but now being in Kentucky, you know, we could just kind of say, go out and get some whiskey. (laughs) It's going to be easier. Yeah. So we're actually
0: going to be living, um, across the river in Kentucky so excited about that, you know, uh, hour and a half from Louisville, about, we'll call it an hour and a half from Lexington. And so then all the distilleries, points in between are, are about that same distance, including our friend who we've talked about before, David Meyer, his yeah, distillery. The true lean whiskey. Creek, Glens <laughs> yeah, Creek Distilling. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to hanging out with him more. Um, there's a, a distillery on the very northern side of Kentucky right before the river, um, New Rift Distillery.
1: Which, which I've only recently had and uh, I really enjoyed. Yeah, so Good
0: I'm going to check that out. And then there's even smaller micro distilleries, even on the Ohio side um, in Cincinnati. But I've already heard the recommendations of there's a certain liquor store with a tasting bar in mm. the Kentucky side that specializes in old, dusty Bottles, okay, and you can go and do flights of some of these older whiskeys. I mean, I'm sure it's not cheap, and sure. um, <laughs> there's actually a real, really nice um, whiskey bourbon tasting bar in the Cincinnati Airport. Mm. So you can go and have uh, a sip. They'll put it in a plastic glass if you want to take your tasting um, to you. the gate. <laughs> and if you're on the way home, or even past security, you know, next time coming here, if we're going to meet up again, I could. Buy a bottle, pass security, and then bring it to you. But, but being um, it, that, that it was going to be a flight here anyway, that was uh, I hate checking a bag, but I'll do it for whiskey. <laughs> so that's what we're going to be able to taste something together today from a bottle that that I brought.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna do our first ever tasting of this whiskey, um, which which is which is fun, and also do a little side a little side by side, but the same whiskey in two different glasses. Um, so, so what I brought today is something we've talked about
0: before. It was episode 29. It was sort of like the ill-fated barrel from Garrison brothers. And we have tasted and talked about Garrison brothers, Mm -hmm. um, before, uh, it would be great to meet up with you there someday. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's more likely we meet up uh, in Kentucky and probably more likely do another episode in person there that that's driving distance, but you know, I'm not going to recap the whole, um, sorted awful, um, mishap story. People can go back to episode 29 and listen to it. But uh, my attempt at a long story short was this was a, a barrel that my wife and I had filled in September of 2014, and, 2015. And we were going, no, 2014. And we were going to um, let it age and we were going to buy, we had the option of buying the contents of said barrel. And there was a mishap. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. But the master distiller dropped another larger barrel on ours and it was crushed and it was smashed, and all the liquid spilled out into the floor. So we had the opportunity to buy the bottle, the barrel that was filled right before ours and aged right next to it. And so our, our custom label here, and I'm, I'm gifting what we don't drink during the episode, I'm gifting this to, to Jamie. <laughs> There'll be plenty left. <laughs> this is our Garrison Brothers Texas Straight Bourbon Whiskey, cask-strength, single barrel. Uh, it's, we've named it One Off because it is a one-off whiskey. Once the, the 60 bottles from this barrel uh, are gone, it's, it'll never exist again. Uh, it's one off in the barrel number, and we're going to taste it. And um, 61.35%.
1: Alcohol at that cask strength, yeah, yeah. that's it's it's uh, a it's pretty some strong stuff, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's you know it's an interesting story because it we, we've talked about this before, I know, but the idea of you value add in whiskey, right? And and you yeah. kind of go, well, inventory isn't value add, but if it's aging and improving <laughs> in the barrel, it's changing, yeah, it is value add, and it's uh, a multi year value
0: add. So, whiskey makers, if uh, if they're good about it, they have to be patient. Yep. Uh, more so in Scotland, the aging is accelerated in the US, even more so in Texas. But uh, I'll, I'll plug one of my other podcasts, My Favorite Mistake. Donis Todd, the master distiller, told a story there of how he actually did overage some whiskey. So it's, it's value adding until it hits a point now where it becomes defective. Mm. And he missed that sweet spot and that was one of his mistakes
1: but he he learned from it and he didn't get fired so all's good i guess (laughs) all's good but it yeah that that patience and 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 the the speciality of it and 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 that's why you ended up with one-off versus doing the whole process again, right? But it,
0: Yeah, we didn't want to wait another seven years. <laughs> no, but it
1: kind of reminds me of that, that freighter that came across from Europe with all the, the Lamborghinis. And, yeah. you know, you, you probably custom-ordered your car, you spent a boatload of money on it, uh, you're waiting for it forever, and it's on its way, and the, the ship burns. Yeah. <laughs> now you got to start, you got to kind of go, am I going to wait that whole thing again, or am I just going to buy something off the lot, <laughs>
0: Well, I heard a story about some authors, I think the one in particular was a cookbook author, who had, and I'm surprised that they were printing books in Europe and shipping them across to the US on a boat. On that same boat, it was like the entire print run of some celebrity chefs, I forget the name, uh, full color, gorgeous, maybe it's specialty printing, I don't know, but um, it all ended up lost at sea. And the lead times on all of that printing, whew, we're going to mean a delay uh, getting that book to market. So yeah, felt I bad for that author.
1: I'm not sure it's it's more or less wasteful to split your batch into two and put it on two different <laughs> ships, or it's a, it's a risk yeah, mitigation print on demand as, strategy. as I do do today. But um, but yeah, I know, I know we don't spend a lot of time talking about the whiskeys, but this. This has a lot of richness of flavor, you know, sort of caramel and mm-hmm. banana. I think is I'm not really good at tasting yeah, notes. But. I don't know if I get banana, but Garrison Brothers always has a lot of like
0: caramel and butterscotch. Yep, um, it's it's a really deep orangey, even reddish um, color. I, I can't come up with the tasting notes, but I think this. I don't think I told the story before when I finally got the bottles. I gave one to a friend of mine who's part of a bourbon tasting group in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And even though they're all from Texas, and my friend Doug has been down to Garrison Brothers with me, and he, he loves their different releases. A lot of his friends, even though they're Texans, true and through and true, a lot of them have a, uh, a bias against Texas whiskey. Like mm-hmm. they are into Kentucky bourbon. And so he brought a bottle of this release, and he blind tasted it for them. And he asked them to guess, and they're fairly sophisticated, what do you think it is? And they guessed, first off, that it was Kentucky bourbon. <laughs> Wrong. He had them guess the mash bill, and they thought, uh, well, it's spicy, it must be a high rye bourbon. Right. Wrong. It's, it's actually a weeded bourbon. Right. It, it is spicy. I think that must come from the barrel. Yep. And then they guessed, like, oh, it must be a bottled in bond. It's probably 50% ABV. Wrong. It's actually... Sixty-two, um, and 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 they liked it. So I guess it, it goes to show maybe be open-minded if you are generalizing
1: and say I don't like Texas whiskey. There there are some that I don't like. Yeah. Well, and and you know Texas whiskey because of the heat, right? Mm-hmm. It, it 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 does does do something different in the barrel than a, than a Kentucky climate. Um, or Scotch. Yeah. Or Scotch certainly, and 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 so that that has an effect, but. You know, it just you don't want to just assume that that's the only variable, right? Yeah. There's there's the control the master distiller takes. There's the ingredients. There's there's so many other factors that mm-hmm. that again, our friend David Myers, like, right. Hey, don't don't just don't just think aging is the is the main factor. There's so much more to it. Yeah, uh, including grain selection. Well, so. there,
0: there are many variables, and and the, and the difference between the two one-off barrels, the the two barrel numbers, it was basically the same distillate put into different barrels aged side by side. And the barrel that we had tasted before it got destroyed was a much lighter, more delicate whiskey. It was almost out of character mm-hmm. first Garrison brothers. It might be the type of thing you blend right in with other barrels. And then, and then this one came out more that typical style, if not really surprisingly spicy. Mm-hmm. So I, I've got to think that's the variation in
1: the barrels. Yeah, I, I'd imagine so. And, 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 uh, you know, I, I do know that, and this probably wasn't the case here because it's not that big an operation. But the the the, the multi-story rickhouses, uh, uh, where you know the top floor is going to get a different heat profile than the bottom yeah. floor, yeah. can really change you know a barrel. But you know how the how the air flows through the room, you know what it, what that does to the the micro temperatures and, yeah. and how much how much you knock a barrel and it sloshes around, all sorts of. All sorts of factors, but yeah, but yeah, the, the barrel is a imprecise, uh, process as well. Um, yeah, you know, we, I don't think anybody's done a study of, well, this tree grew in the Northern side of the forest and <laughs> yeah. created, yeah, created these kinds of things. There, there,
0: there's the wood variation. There's how much it's charred. And I mean, the, 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 the podcast here is not six Sigma whiskey. I'm going to mm-hmm. argue not all variation is bad,
1: right? No and I think that's the fun thing you know the, the fun thing about whiskey in general is 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 the variation uh same thing is true of wine and and even you know when you get single barrels like this you know you can taste the differences from barrel to barrel mm-hmm. that that's that's interesting Yeah some people some people really prize that Yeah and that's range. why that's why blending you know Bl- blending was was more about hiding bad barrels. It <laughs> <laughs> could be uh, for a long time. Now it's now it's not. Now it's about maintaining a consistency uh, by by blending your way to the mean to the mean. But- I would be curious if you had an honest
0: a distiller who would speak honestly about this. I didn't mean to say there are dishonest distillers, but yeah, I mean if you've got something that on its own doesn't match your brand or uh, is slightly off. I bet you could hide that in a, a
1: a batched blend. Yeah, I would, I would, I would think so. But I can see how uh, the blind tasters thought this was a rye. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you definitely get more spice uh, than a yeah. Yeah. than a typical weeded yeah. bourbon. If, if not a rye, a
0: high rye bourbon right. mash bill, um, it, it's not overly, uh, it's not super corny sweet. So I could see where someone might think it was actually mostly rye.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. So yeah, it's not, not super sweet, but again, it's got that, that candy caramel on it. So, yeah. But then we're, we're, we're doing this
0: comparison where we've tasted two different whiskeys side by side before Mm -hmm. here. We've got the same whiskey in two different glasses. So I have, uh, from the hotel, um, it's, it's basically a stemless wine glass. It's a reasonably, Decent glass. It's, for for it,
1: hotel glasses, this is probably as good as it gets. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I would drink wine out of this. It's it's a fairly thin. It's not super delicate. It's not a, a Riedel no special, but uh, it's reasonably good. And then then speaking of Riedel, Jamie brought some glasses along. I'm, I'm tasting alongside.
1: This is what they call it the Riedel Somme. Sommelier or Somme glass tasting glass. And and I've got a Norland tasting glass. So and you've used that before. I've not yeah. seen it in person. Yeah, I've I've used this before. It's it's uh, uh, it, it's it's engineered to sort of separate the the bad uh, uh, alcohol emittance from the mm-hmm. from the aroma, and, and so you're supposed to get more of that. So really, the comparison is: does the same whiskey in mm-hmm. two different glasses make a difference?
0: Yeah, and I've, you know the 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 Riedel glass because we're not on video and people can't see it. It, it's very similar to a Glencairn glass, but instead of the top curving in toward the middle, it mm-hmm. actually curves out like a like a flower. Yeah. So it's it's actually wider at the top, and like my understanding of glasses like this, they're trying to like somehow like deposit the liquid on a particular part of your tongue is one thing they do even with wine glasses with the yeah. shape and what it's, have you. It's
1: that usually plus the the nature of the aroma um, and and how it interacts with your uh, your, your nose, so. Um, but I, I generally trust Riedel to <laughs> to do things pretty well. Yeah, it's a high quality. It's a pretty delicate glass. Very delicate. A little worried it might not make it. Um, but but it's interesting just comparing the, the glasses. You know, the hotel glass because because you know I, I've traveled by car some lately, and you know, okay, if I travel by car. I can bring a bottle with me. Yeah. Um, do I bring a glass with me too? Is sort mm. of a question. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with whiskey out of this, you know, I'll say non-whiskey glass. Yeah. But it's, it's just, not as good. I mean, it's not a classic
0: tumbler. Um, I'd probably, I probably, I, I think it's better drinking it out of the pseudo wine glass, maybe. But I, w- I would travel with a glass. Um, those uh, Glencairn glasses are... Mm-hmm. Not quite as thin and delicate as this, I would make sure it was bubble wrapped, probably, yeah. and yeah, I'm not I'd probably sure I throw it in my backpack instead of the
1: suitcase yep and and i've I've broken one of these Orleans glasses because they will chip but well, if you, I mean, you gotta drop it, but yeah. um, but I have to say I, I think there's two aspects of it uh I do think that the it the taste and the 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 nose is improved in in a better glass, yeah. And, and so I, I, I definitely feel, especially the nose, I think. But it, there's also the feel of it, right? Just yeah sort of the act of drinking out of a proper glass is, to me, part of the
0: experience. Yeah. I mean, the, the diameter of the top of the glass is about the same, but this this Riedel mm-hmm. has more of that curve outward. It's, I'll call it convex, where the top of this wine glass is, is kind of concave. Mm-hmm. So it's probably, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not... Neither you know, we're we're not doing the podcast for tasting notes' sake or for tasting notes listeners, but um, it, 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 to me, there's a, a little bit less pronounced oak. Maybe it's just after some sips, I've gotten accustomed <laughs> to it out of the other glass.
1: It it, it could be, but I, yeah. I do think you know for me, it it sort of mellows out a little bit mm-hmm. without losing any of the flavor. Um, uh, so. And I, and I think that's mostly in, in the nose. Yeah. Um, but you know, as unscientific as this experiment was, the glass matters. I'm going to continue the experiment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I may, com- I may consolidate it into a single glass for simplicity here, but uh, I'm going to give it my, my overly simplistic, uh,
1: smells good, tastes good, smells good, tastes good. And you know, i I've I'll, 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 I drink this out of a plastic cup if that's at <laughs> handy. So <laughs> I've, I've been guilty of that. I mean, I would, I would do that too, if yeah. need be. Yeah. Yep. So, um, all right. Well, there's our, our fun whiskey of the, uh, of the day. So, uh, thank you, Garrison brothers. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And thank you, Mark, for, for my, uh, my bottle here that, yeah. um, as we say, whiskey, it's, it's always more fun with friends. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad I don't just have a bottle of your whiskey that we get to actually open it and drink it together. Yeah. So cheers, cheers.
0: All right, so we've done the whiskey part of lean whiskey. I guess we'll do the lean. Do the lean part, yeah. part of lean whiskey. And I, I had a random thought the the other day because um, you know we've probably got people listening who fast forward through the whiskey part or don't Possibly. care yeah. about <laughs> the whiskey part. I was saying that maybe we'll we'll take this segment and and I might cut it out and and publish it in the lean, in my lean blog podcast mm-hmm. as an experiment mm-hmm. just to see. We'll call it you know just the lean,
1: just the lean portion, or
0: come up, up with some name because I, I think we'll have a good discussion here uh, based on an article
1: blog post Jamie wrote in what 2015. I I think so. I think that's right. It's been a while, but. It's it's been a constant thought of mine, and that, that is the topic of, of Lean One Hundred and One, or Intro to Lean, or whatever you want to call it. Um, what should it exist? Mm-hmm. Uh, if so, what should it look like? Uh, yeah. What, in what you form? Include, what form? What content, etc. In, in a lot of ways, companies new to the journey, in particular, but even mature in the journey struggle with, you know, what, what should we do? What's the right mm-hmm. form? How do we get it out to the, the masses, so to speak? And, yeah. and, and I'm not sure I've, I've ever been satisfied with many of the answers and examples. Hmm. I mean, you, you and I've
0: probably, I, I've certainly been tasked with uh, doing some lean 101 training. I'm sure, I'm sure you've done that too.
1: I've I have but very little of it. I, mm-hmm. I would generally you know, back in my older I'll say consulting days because I mm-hmm. think that's different than what I do today. Yeah, you know we, we had lots of training. We we training was a big part of what we did, but I would generally try mm-hmm. to get out of us doing Lean One Hundred and One. Um, so and I and I felt that for for a couple of reasons. Um, one is I didn't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know that, why, why is that? I. You know, I I think it it's it it feels a little robotic, a little scripted, kind of because it should be. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Um, and uh and, and 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 I think the the kind of you know I've always fed on the questions. Mm-hmm. I've always fed on the depth and the give me a challenging question and I, I feel like you know, you don't get as much of that well, richness in a lean 101. Well, one. But that, that, I guess that's one variable of how do you conduct it. Right. Is it.
0: Um, not accusing you of this, or <laughs> I hope I haven't done this, but you know the droning, one direction, PowerPoint heavy, mm-hmm. lean one hundred and one versus something that's much more discussion based. Yes, so that you know there's variables. like is an executive team? How many people are in the room? I would say with an executive team, we want to do something that's much more discussion based. Mm-hmm. Um, which which topics? do you choose do you have exercises I mean there, there there's many many variables where I'd say not all lean 101
1: sessions are created equal or there, there's so many different ways to do it so many different ways to do it but I but I think you know so one of the variables is also the who does it and mm-hmm. and and I've always felt pretty strongly that um, pretty strongly not there's no there's probably no decision point in lean 101 that I'll I'll hold to as as religion. But yeah. I felt pretty strongly that the credibility of the instructor matters. Yeah. And for advanced topics, people are looking for the depth, right? They're looking for, you know, I'm not gonna say someone like you or I, but I mean they're looking for the depth and they're looking for the credibility that comes with perhaps years, if not decades, of of study and practice and mm-hmm. and and exploration. I feel with lean one oh one the credibility to the audience is more about an organizational statement than depth of lean knowledge. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if you're whether it's a you know one hour or it's an eight hour or something in between, you're probably not stretching the the depth of knowledge very mm-hmm. very far. So you know what 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 credibility is more important to the listener? Uh, how much you know about lean? Or how committed is the organization to this journey? And I would always argue it's usually the latter. I mean,
0: I could see people being disappointed if, let's say, on one extreme end of a a bell curve, um, you've got standardized corporate slides. Because let's say it's a large global enterprise. So to your point earlier, if not robotic, it needs to be consistent. You want everyone getting the same messaging. But if you've got somebody whose function is basically read slides to people, there's probably not a lot of value there. Otherwise, you could have just emailed the slides to people right. and said, here, read these. If you ask a question and someone's out of their depth and um, hasn't been properly prepared, or maybe it's just a matter of not having the experience, that mm-hmm.
1: might not be a, a really effective Lean 101. It, it might not be. Um, and, and, I, and I think, again, it's a matter of what questions do you want to answer. So this has always been an instructional design uh, uh, variable for me where I often push back on on people going through design. And, and they, they start with, what do we want people to hear? Uh-huh. And I say, no, no, no. The question is, what do they need to hear? Right? Uh, sure. What, what, are they, what do they need to accomplish? What do they need okay. to accomplish? What questions are in their head that you need to answer? right? Those, those types of things is what, what are they asking? What do they feel like they need to know out of this quest, this topic uh, for anything, really, is yeah. kind of my, my argument. So it's really a user-centered design variable around content than mm-hmm. a uh, deliver-centered uh, yeah. uh, uh, criteria. So, so, So I think that's pretty important. And then, you know, regardless of how much time you have, you want to start with you know where are they? Where 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 are their heads at? Mm. Are they are, are they sort of on board with anything, and they just need to know what it is, or sure. are you trying to overcome some natural resistance to uh, to past practices and yeah. and uh, past past well, sins?
0: You've got to know a little bit of the history. You've got to know. We're trying to find out what people already know. So to to those two points, if you're coming into a place where quote-unquote, Lean's been given a bad name. I've seen this in healthcare where I've mm-hmm. been... There was one year I got brought in like three organizations in a row or I was on the heels. I'm not going to mention the consulting group. <laughs> but after uh, it, it was the same group and the diagnosis or the, the explanation of the history was, Lean's gotten a bad name here. Okay, well, why is that? Um, because Lean was nothing but cost-cutting. Mm-hmm. I, oh, boy. So now you, there's almost a need to try to... Uh, you have to help people unlearn. Mm-hmm. If it had been framed literally as just a list of cost cutting projects, uh, I would say that missed the mark and that, that's, that's not really what, that's not at all what, what lean is. So then you, you need to understand that um, and try to help people if there's a recovery from that. But I also think of like on, on this consulting engagement here in Philadelphia, we've got some internal process improvement people we're working with. And even with a broader team we're working with, um, the other um, advisors from Valley Capture and I, we haven't PowerPointed anybody. Mm-hmm. But I think even in one of those first discussions, I was trying to draw out because I have a PI advisor who's already had some training, a little bit of experience. I'm trying to draw out, teach back to me what you know, and we're whiteboarding stuff. And th- th- this seems like you and your uh, Windows tablet, Jamie, the way you might interact with people, whether right. it's in person or online. Like, mm-hmm. What do you know? Let's have a conversation about that. Let me fill in some gaps. If they say something that's "quote unquote" wrong, maybe sort of you know try to in a gentle way. So, well, what I taught was you know what, what I was taught was this, mm-hmm. and allow them to kind of process that and think about that.
1: Um, yeah, and that, and that yeah, I'll, I'll say the 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 benefit of of a conversational engaging style of a lean one one allows you to meet the student where they are yeah right without too much pre-work without too much assumption uh yeah. that you build into it uh the, the downside is that depending on who's delivering it it can you know you certainly lose some of the consistency unless you really prepare the instructors around those yeah. those those talking points and
0: there's a difference where when i was talking with with this woman it was uh, a one, basically a one-on-one conversation. It could be completely tailored to her individual knowledge and needs. When you're in a room of people, I think the biggest challenge is when you have a room of people with a wide range of previous knowledge mm-hmm. or experience. Now, like, do you, do you, do you go in the middle where you might be overwhelming people who don't know anything? and it might be boring the people who
1: already know mm-hmm. something. Maybe they shouldn't be in the the lean one-on-one class. I yeah, and and I, and I think a lot of that is around what's the, you know, what is the investment, right? So, you know, if if it was, say, a 90-minute training uh, or event or whatever you want to call it, yeah, I kind of feel like, okay, if you're going to be bored for an hour and a half, so be it. (laughs) You know, like you should hear the same things that other people are hearing just because it'll help the conversations that come after that and you can see where they are and you can help them and you can be part of the process and you can build on it if it's a day, if it's more than a day, and and they're going to be bored, that's a that's a bigger question. I mean, I somebody says, hey, would you want to sit in on a one-day Lean 101 training just to give us some feedback? I'd have to think long and hard about whether yeah. I'd want to do that. I don't know if I would want to spend a
0: day in a Whiskey 101 class unless there was a lot of tasting because I feel like I've progressed beyond – whiskey 101
1: yeah i probably haven't so i i probably would <laughs> learn more i'm still not sure i want to sit there without a tasting talking about whiskey for <laughs> right. for eight hours maybe we need to com- combine lean 101 training with whiskey that's a limited market for that that, I is, bet. that is a limited market yeah. i think there's some general counsels that might <laughs> right. put the kibosh on that right. that particular right. uh decision but it would be it would be interesting i actually gave a speech today uh speaking of you know my whiteboarding uh, digital whiteboarding is gave a speech today to a to an evening audience in the middle east and -hmm. and, um it was uh yeah it was a good 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 conversation and 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 good moment but yeah an evening intro to lean course might might go a little differently than a than a lunch and learn
0: yeah but you know your your blog post and we'll, we'll link to this in the show notes um you know, I don't know if it was intended to be provocative. The the title was, um, you know, skip the lean intro training. I think with with a question mark.
1: Right? Yeah, and, and 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 I I think it was meant. It wasn't meant to be just provocative. It was meant to suggest that I think a lot of organizations could do without it, um, mm-hmm. because you know, here here's my argument against doing it at all. And I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying. If if you're gonna do lean one oh one, um know what comes after. Mm. know, know mm-hmm. what comes next. And and if there's a clear plan, if there's a roadmap, if there's a strategy behind how you're gonna teach people, then do they need intro to lean or do they need the first tool capability or method you're gonna ask them to use? Right. And then you build on it, right? So so you don't learn, you know, if it, we're both engineers by education, we don't get to do a lot of that anymore yeah. but you know we've never been taught the history of scientific thinking no, right? no uh, the history of engineering right we Probably learned not. we learned math and mechanics right because that was step one and then and physics and and then we learned the next capability and then we we then we did more integrative capabilities mm-hmm. right and there was a progression to that learning where we didn't even have to know where we were headed we had to kind of have some line of sight, but fundamentally it was, we're going to give you, we're going to give you some building blocks and you're going to use them. Then we're going to give you some more integrative capabilities mm-hmm. and you're going to use those. And then we're going to teach you to think for yourself. You're going to use that. Yeah. But we didn't really need an intro course there. Right. Yeah. And, and you look at most disciplines that, you know, it, you, you start with some core capabilities and you. You build on that Mm -hmm. and you build on that and build on that. And so that's really my argument is that I think lean can be taught the same way. I mean, I think at the same time, a lot of it's very situational.
0: What challenges does, does this organization face? There are some people, there's all kinds of dogma out there, right? There's, there's, there's one um, school of thought that says, you know, don't do training. You learn by doing lots and lots of Kaizen events. And that's the only mode or model that they're using. There's something to be said by for learning by doing with an experienced coach. There is going to introduce the right tool, uh, just you know, just in time training, if you will. I think there's a lean lesson there. Yep. You know, uh, back to when I think we went through similar uh, program in, uh, in in the day. It was uh, TQM, Total Quality Management, at MIT, yep. and they would talk about what learn, do, learn, do, learn, do. Yep. I think there's a lean principle maybe that's helpful around smaller batches right. of learning. Learn and go and try and, and get feedback and get experience. But, but back to like what, what do you start with? I, w- I would argue that's situational. There's, there's dogma. We've all heard it that says you always start with 5S. Right. I, I've seen situations where starting with kind of simple PDSA Kaizen is a great place to get started you're teaching people problem solving exactly and then at some point they may run into a problem where 5s is a very helpful countermeasure and let's learn about that a little bit and then let's go do mm-hmm. and let's keep going
1: yeah and, and and so i think a lot of it, it does depend on how much control you have over such a roadmap right mm-hmm. so going back to our engineering education cool. well you know The the university had a lot of control over that. What's required, what's an elective, what's optional, right? Lots and lots of control over ensuring you got the pieces. So I, I think one of the factors people sort of filters people put on making the decision around do I have lean intro to lean and what's included if I don't is probably comes from a fear of lack of that control, right? Meaning that- Hey, if if I could lay out the next three years wow. of your education, then I'm gonna I'm gonna feed it to you a piece at a time, just in time. But I, I don't have confidence that that's how well, it's gonna go. So I'm gonna give you something while I have the chance.
0: But it seems like you know, a college setting is much more controlled. Oh, yeah. And deterministic. And when you think of a three-year roadmap for an organization, the younger people listening, if there are younger people listening,
1: they're going <laughs> to say, what's a roadmap? <laughs> they might, yes.
0: And you're know, who, who knows what, like, especially in healthcare, like a three-year roadmap for an organization, there are so many things that could change in the next three years. Mm-hmm. Or let's rewind three years. Yeah. Who you know? There, there, there was a pandemic. Um, there was a change in um, administrations. There are all these different things that are hard to predict. I mean, I'll give credit to uh, Ryan McCormick, uh, good good lean guy I know uh, uh, up in Winnipeg. He mm-hmm. might be he might be listening. Um, I'll give him credit because I heard the idea from him. He would probably give credit to somebody else uh, if, if, instead of thinking of a roadmap. Think of GPS. Mm-hmm. You took you, you use GPS to drive here today. It had a plan, but if it's a good GPS, depending on traffic changes, it may reroute you. Mm-hmm. And and I've been really fascinated with that idea recently. Of We still use the language, I think, of a lean roadmap, but what if we thought, this is getting off the topic of lean 101, but if we're thinking of lean GPS, that might influence our thoughts on how much can we really predict the sequence of what we need to teach.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I agree with that. Um, of course, it requires us... I'll say coding the algorithm, right? Yeah. Um, mapping the terrain. We know much more about our roadways than we do about how to successfully navigate a, a, an organization's transformation. And, and I think that's, you know, three years is a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of things can change. And if you're doing Lean 101, then you probably don't know as much about the three-year commitment to the journey itself. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there is a tendency to say, hey, I've got them for whatever time I've got them. I'm going to give them everything I can. And, mm-hmm. and that, that I think leads to what I think is the biggest mistake of intro to lean training is just trying to cram too yeah. much into the, into the bag, Yeah, whether it's an I've, hour and a half or, three eight, or, or eight hours.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think there's a temptation, especially with people who have less experience. They're excited yeah. and they want to share everything that they've learned that's made an impact to them. right? right. So I think a lot of it comes from a good place. Mm-hmm. Of like, I'm excited. I know these things, I want to share them with you, but it runs the risk of overwhelming people or giving you know I, I think there's this question around you know batch size of learning. How much can people really absorb before you need to say okay, let's 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 stop and and let's go do something and apply what we've learned. And I think there's the other challenge, and it's a speaker trap of you, know, you we've all heard a presenter at a conference who says, this is normally a full day workshop, but I've only got 45 minutes. And they're <laughs> literally trying to cram a day. Don't do that. Don't, don't, do that. don't cram a full day into 45 minutes.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I, I would say, you know, I, I definitely used to be that way. I'd, I'd want it, yeah. whether it was, yeah. whether it was ego right. and I wanted to show how much I knew oh, yeah. or it was, it was passion and I wanted to share how much I learned. Right there's there's little nuggets like like you probably read Michael Kusumano's book on the Japanese automotive history long time um, ago long time ago yeah and and it was his PhD dissertation on Japanese studies and mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't even it wasn't really a lean book but you still want to study it and and you go back to you know the history of arranged marriages and banks and you know all these things that that had an influence <laughs> on Toyota in the early days and. Well, that's knowledge that not everybody has. <laughs> but it's interesting, and I want to share it yeah. uh, and tell that story. but that that's probably not the, the, yeah. the filter that I, yeah. that the student's looking at it through. Yeah.
0: I mean, can we teach principles of built-in quality and error proofing without talking about weaving looms? Probably. Probably. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's you know there's one other dimension of like thinking of uh, fit for fitness for use, Lean 101 training in an organization that's brand new to lean versus one that's years into the journey. You're going to have new employees, new leaders. You want to give them that uh, lean 101, if you will. It's probably all the better if you're drawing on examples from your own organization. So mm-hmm. people aren't tempted to say, but we don't make weaving looms and we're not Japanese or we're not manufacturers. Like, you know, I think when you can say, you can point to here are uh, principles and, and and methods and here's how it's actually been applied here that's probably uh, when, when you can do that more beneficial than pointing to other companies
1: other industries or even other centuries yeah yeah other centuries right <laughs> exactly and 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 i think that is a big factor in what should be in the content which which is interesting because i don't see a lot of organizations that refresh their lean 101 mm. training as much as they should but yeah if you are mature, you're really preparing somebody, you know, for what they're going to see in the organization that's already there, Mm -hmm. right? Here's why we, here's why we (laughs) do what we do Mm -hmm. in the way that we do it. If you're new to the journey, you're, you're mostly trying to answer the question why, right? Why, why, why us? Why now? Why this? And, and to me, that's, that's a, uh, you know, whether it's history or data or benchmarking or logic, right, you, you do want to build some credibility into what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But you also, at the same time, want to answer, you know, why are we doing this, right? What, right. What's relevant for our organization at this time, which which I think is yeah. important. Because if this is important, why didn't we do it last year or the year before, mm-hmm. And that's why I always like it's not just why it's why now, <laughs> right? Right? What right. what is special about now? Maybe we're finally just convinced ourselves, and that's that's the best answer we have. That's mm-hmm. fine, yep. but you know why? Why not last year? Why not five yeah. years ago? Why not five years in
0: the future? Yeah. So I think I'm just you know thinking of another example. There's a difference between Lean 101, new people into an organization. I'm going to teach you the history of Hoshan Conry. Like, okay, that. Uh, when I talk about you know Hewlett Packard and other and then you know because I think part of the history was Hewlett Packard Japan it wasn't even necessarily mm-hmm. um, Toyota or other um, usual suspects but then I think there's a difference between saying well here here's a history of Hoshin Conry. let me teach you in general what an X matrix is versus pulling up here's our current X matrix right. And so now I'm teaching you about the current state of the business and some of the plans and objectives. And I'm going to teach you how an X matrix works, which which I think when I joined Honeywell in 2004, um, the director I worked for was a a former Danaher guy who was all about the X matrix. And he tried going through all that for all that purpose. And I still felt like my head was going to explode from turning my head and rotating the paper so much and piecing it together. But (laughs) I think when you can make it really, really practical, um, that's going to resonate with people and answer the question of like, why should I be paying attention to this? Why should I be committing any of this to memory?
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I I think expectations should be, should be clear. What's next should be clear. I, I am reminded of, uh, there's a episode of The Big Bang Theory where Penny wants to know what Leonard does and <laughs> goes to Sheldon for for help and he he makes her take out a new notebook and he's like, "What is physics?" and <laughs> it was a starry night and is, and and so he's he goes into this this spiel and she's like, "I just want to know what Leonard does." <laughs> yeah, right. So it, it is what what question are we trying to answer? And and in the end, right, people. What is lean? Well, it's a, it's a way to get better, right? So if, yeah. if we want to really make it simple. And, and that's why you know, my bias was always towards you know if, if somebody gave me an hour, I'd want to spend at least a third of that time, if not half or more, giving them something practical that they can mm-hmm. do like that day, yeah, right? Because if I'm going to just spend an hour talking about just lean stuff, like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do this afternoon with what I just gave you? Unless I give you something you can do yeah. immediately and, and put it to use, and then maybe you're curious about more. But if if the only outcome of an hour teach is I need another hour teach, <laughs> well, okay, right. I'm not sure that then, – then we should have just asked for the two hours to begin with. Yeah,
0: yeah so how much time do you spend you, – you should spend some time on something actionable, learn and do and go and try – how much time do you devote to setting the context of why? Cause you might have an organization that already thinks it's really a, a high performing organization or better than most. Um, and, and setting that context of, you know, what, what the motivation is. If you're brought in as an outsider, why, why were you even brought in? If an organization is noodling, why, what's their hypothesis on why this is going to be helpful? Or if the organization is down the path and this is training for, for new employees, to articulate the why in terms of the benefits, not, not just hypotheses, but here's our experience. Mm-hmm. We've improved safety by this much. We've improved quality by this much. We've improved on-time delivery by this much. And here's how that flows through. We're a stronger, better business as a result. That's, I think, more impactful than this like theoretical exercise. Right. Of, or, or you know, There's also another question. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on. You know, Toyota would frame the Toyota production system as technical methods or tools, management approach, philosophy. Like if you had an hour to teach Lean 101, you probably don't want to spend an hour on philosophy, even, right. though, even though the philosophy is really important, right? Yep.
1: Yeah. And, and, and so that is, you know, there, there's always time and a place for to, to build on what you've done. So... You know, I I like to work backwards from what are they going to do coming out of this, yeah. right? And sometimes it is well, they're going to sign up for three day class. Okay, fine. If that if that's the, if that's the next step, then let's let's all we have to do is pique their curiosity in a way that sets up they go sign up for a three day class, mm-hmm. right? And I'm I'm totally okay with that. But you still want to answer that question: What do they do next? And if you yep. don't have an answer, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you don't. If, if if there is no next, if it's like this is the only shot, that's the that's the tough design uh, yeah. situation. That's the that's where I have some sympathy for folks. Where it's like, hey, I've been asked to do this training. We don't have a roadmap. We don't have the resources. We have this one shot. How do I get? And this is the key, right? It's like they, they ask, how do I get everything across that we need to get across? It's like that's not gonna. It's probably not gonna fly. How do you? How do you set them up for success right. uh, with something and, and then I'll say hope the rest takes care of itself later mm-hmm. on. I think there's another good lean principle
0: there of um, customer focus. Mm-hmm. The customer of the training like you said, working backward from what they need to accomplish. I always think back to Taiichi Ono and in, in, in his uh, book on the Toyota production system, there's a Chapter where the header just says "Start from need," and then later on he says "Start from your most pressing needs." Mm-hmm. At least how that was translated, and um, assuming that's accurate, I think that's that's compelling. Thinking about what people need. I think another trap, whether it's training or a presentation, is thinking my job is to get through all the slots. Right. Like to 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 an opposite. I've often set up when I've done different training, whether it was. Lean training, or uh, you know, Kaizen, continuous improvement training, or stuff based on my book, measures of success and process behavior charts. A lot of times, I will say up front, I do not see my job here. I do not define success as getting through all my slides
1: mm-hmm.
0: in the sequence that I predicted was going to be correct. So there's always, I think, this need for for adjustments based on um, the questions people are asking. So, okay, well, that's a great question. Let's, let's go ahead and let's jump ahead and touch on a different lean concept. That wasn't the sequence I planned on going through, but I, I think there is no one right sequence. I think this is the challenge in building a class or even writing a book. In what sequence do I introduce these, these ideas? There might not be one right way.
1: No, because quite frankly, if if they weren't integral to each other, you wouldn't put them in the same course, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if they were completely disconnected, independent thoughts. Right? Yeah, here's here's two parts of the class, and they're unrelated to each other. Yeah. Well, then there should right. be two right. courses, right? The fact is, they're integrated. They overlap. They feed each other, and it's not and and generally not in a linear way. So, yeah. so yeah, I don't think there's a right way, um, but at the same time, you have to understand your your course design enough to know. You know what? Uh, what destroys the integrity of the flow of the course mm. because there, there is at least in, in how it's designed, uh, 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 there should be an internal logic behind it. And if yeah. you're not, if you don't understand why that design is the way that it is, then you don't know where you can where you can deviate and where you can't. Right? It's just like a detour yeah. on a GPS. Right? <laughs> if you have a roadmap, you kind of go. OK, here's where I can detour and here's where I can't detour, mm-hmm. where GPS maybe solves that problem for you. Yeah. And so thinking about GPS
0: something about driving, I mean, the thing about lean or the Toyota production system is a system. It's hard to think of. It's hard to describe this interconnected system in a linear way, where I think if you're teaching somebody to drive, you probably could break down the most important things to teach first are. The difference, I don't know. First, do you teach them the difference between park, reverse, neutral, and drive? And then once they know that, I don't know, what's the next most important thing? Uh, accelerator versus brake? And if it's electric car, the whole gear shift thing, and I almost <laughs> say gas pedal. Uh, <laughs> these, uh, another outdated term, kind of like roadmap for some people. But, yeah, well, then um, there's
1: clutch, so we'll, we won't even go there.
0: <laughs> right. Um uh, cause you, you, drive a stick shift still, right? Just a not, not currently, not currently. Um,
1: and if I, if I had a I th- bigger driveway or a bigger garage, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have, I'd have something that's a stick in, in there, but, uh, yeah. current currently without a, a, an mm. automatic or without so, a manual. So, but to,
0: uh, so here, I'll build on, on the parallel. Maybe driving one Oh one course for 15 uh, year olds trying to get their learner's permit. Probably does not need to include a segment on the history of the automobile. Right. Um, it probably doesn't require a segment on the history of driving
1: laws. What I care about is what are the laws today, and right? why, and why, and right? why, and that's that's where that's that's the tricky mm-hmm. part sometimes. But and the why. Yeah, but
0: if if most, uh, I, I imagine, I think even when I was learning how to drive in. The late eighties, I'm sure the class assumed that everybody was going to be driving an automatic transmission car. Mm-hmm. I don't remember any, like if you were going to have to drive a stick shift. And when I've learned, my dad is a GM executive would often have different, um, uh, company cars or, uh, loaner cars that he could get. And so he, oh gosh, this must've been frustrating for him trying to teach me it was him teaching me how to drive a stick shift, not a driving school instructor.
1: Right. Oh, no, and I, I learned how to drive a stick shift after I bought one. I, I bought one. It was parked <laughs> yeah. on a hill, and then I then I uh-huh. had to, yeah. and, and I and yeah. I had to learn how to drive a stick. Shift. So your hypothesis was I could figure this out. My my hypothesis was I could figure this out. Did it, you bur- did you burn out the clutch? I did not. Okay. No. I mean, eventually <laughs> I did because I bought a used car and it was already already part way there. But some teenager had abused it. Maybe it 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 it, it had gotten some work, but but uh, it also just had some age. It was a. It was a 1984. So, so what
0: what, what was it though? It was
1: a a CJ7. Jeep
0: CJ7. Jeep CJ7. CJ7.
1: Okay. So my
0: my first car was a 1984 Oldsmobile Cutlass
1: Supreme. Yeah. Automatic. Yeah. So this wasn't my first car, but it was my first my first manual (laughs) car. Yeah. So so let me. This is a side. This is a complete side note, but uh, just since this is about us, right? Um, Sure. There's a. A, we've had a discussion recently about driver's education in schools and whether you get to drive a car or you just learn about stuff. Mm. So I got to drive as part of driver's education mm-hmm. delivered by the school. Mm-hmm. And we drove an, a, an AMC Eagle. Wow. Yeah. Which which is not a good car. There's no risk of going too fast. Right? No risk of going too fast. <laughs> no. Um, n- none at all. Or... Uh, being seen as cool, right? You, I mean, you can't <laughs> yeah. be cool in an AMC Eagle. Yeah. So, so did, your drive, did you have driver education with a car? And if so, what was that car? I don't remember. It was actually not
0: through the school district. And I, okay. I remember um, growing up when I was young in Ohio, one of my dad's uncles was uh, a phys ed teacher who also taught driver's ed. And I remember hearing about this, and I don't know why this stuck with me. But when I, I took driver's ed, it was actually through uh, the YMCA in mm. our city. I don't oh. think the school district interesting did formal uh, driver's education, or if they did, I don't know. Maybe it was only in the summertime. I don't remember the context, but no, it wasn't through the school district. But I think it's another point that comes back to lean training. Driver's education was not just a classroom experience. Right. I could not get certified as a whatever color driver belt, Mm -hmm. I guess it would be a seat belt, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a driving yellow belt without ever having driven a car.
1: Yes. Which is, which, which is interesting, right? So that is the, the application orientation of, of learning, Mm -hmm. right? I was going to say training, but learning is there's an application element. Um, It's interesting because my, my middle son got his driver's license during the pandemic and the, the the of course you're supposed to go on a road course right you have an instructor mm-hmm. or a, mm. an evaluator in the car with you but they couldn't do that yeah so they basically uh, they, they basically the test was make mm. sure you can parallel park in the drive in the in the parking lot and you kind of passed <laughs> yeah yeah um, so I'm I'm kind of curious if there's going to be any data that suggests that mm. the people we passed with their drivers test during the pandemic yeah. without a full road test. Yeesh. End up with a higher accident rate. Now, fortunately, sure. my son's very, very, very good driver, very cautious I'm sure driver. Sure, you're supervising urgent. him, and enough. You're giving was, him the road education. Yeah, maybe. we are, but but he he also he also but, took to it naturally. So,
0: so was worried. Th- this was not in the episode plan, but this is how these things go. But thinking, extending on the driving analogy to lean training, there's always something to learn, right? So I got my learner's permit. So that's a good phrase. Does anyone get a learner's permit <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from the organization? You're, you're authorized. You're authorized to learn more you're about. Authorized lean. to learn more and go practice. But um, so I, you know, I got my driver's license. Then um, let's see in what sequence. When I turned thirty, my wife and I were living in Phoenix, and you might know the name Jamie uh, Bob Bondurant, race car driver, and yep. he had a school. Yeah, 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 yep. Bob Bondurant yes. Driving School, which um, no longer exists. I think that was even going back to before the pandemic and Bob Bondurant might have passed away. But this was a, a driving class where they had um, you know an oval track and they had a road track. And you were out there with race car instructors. And it was just a, a fun day out there in a, a Mustang and, 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 and cruising around. It was a nice gift to me for my 30th birthday. I, I was really excited about it. But then... Being on kind of like you know a, a kind of a road track and then on the an oval, and you learn real you know basics that would avoid trouble out on railroads. The idea of when you're approaching a curve, you brake when you're going straight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's better to brake when you're going in a straight line than accelerate into the curve. Right. And I think the other idea is making sure you're looking far enough ahead down the road. And you, you know, you're naturally going to steer to where you're looking. And there's this balance. If you don't want to be looking just right to the end of your hood, if you can see the hood, and not too, too far down the road. Um, so there are lessons, I think, that apply to everyday dr- driving. I'm not trying to be uh, racing around. But mm-hmm. there are times if I'm on a curvy road, I'll remember. Oh, in yeah. a straight line, accelerate out of the curve. And then when I worked for Johnson & Johnson, um, as as a, a consultant, we were technically part of the sales organization and we were given company car fleet vehicles and they realized they'll give J&J credit. The most dangerous thing any of us could have done as white collar employees was driving. Mm-hmm. And the more you're out on the road, the more danger, dangerous it was. So a condition of having that company vehicle, which was a nice perk, was to go through a driving course and you would have to do it every three years. So I actually went through that twice. It was out in the mm-hmm. parking lot of a a Texas high school stadium and they set up a thing uh, and and different exercises. And you were were learning through practice Mm -hmm. of learning how to do evasive lane changes. And and, and the the final thing I'll I'll add is a a punchline to the story. You're like, why am I learning this? Okay, hit the brakes, go over a lane and stop. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: When am I going to use? I'm like, okay, this is kind (laughs) of cool. I'm kind of beating up on the company car a little bit. But I was driving in an official JJ capacity from Midland, Texas, back home in the Dallas Fort Worth area. It was at night. I'm driving in the left lane of, of the interstate. And I'm driving along, and suddenly I hear this bang, and my windshield is shattered. I'm not worried about root cause yet. We figured <laughs> out eventually what happened, but uh, I cannot see out of my windshield anymore. And so the muscle memory from that class kicked in. I, slammed, I, I, th- I remember looking in the rearview mirror, slamming on my brakes, going left onto the shoulder,
1: mm-hmm.
0: stopped the car. I'm like, okay, I, whatever happened, I've, I, I've survived it. <laughs> um, and it turns out, you know, they think from the other side of, of traffic, uh, a semi-truck had hit a 4 by 4 that had apparently fallen off of somebody else's load. And this thing was flying at my windshield like a javelin. Jeez. And shattered uh, the windshield. And final, final thought to the story. So I'm appreciative that driving training may very well have saved my life. Mm-hmm. That I didn't go into the ditch. I didn't flip the car. i you know. And then every first responder from a couple different jurisdictions, because this was out in the country, they all asked how'd you get that stopped on the shoulder so perfectly? (laughs) I'm like, thankfully my company invested in safe driving training. So I'm thankful that that wasn't just my gosh,
1: an online course on safe driving. Well, and that, and that, so, so this is why I always like to distinguish lean learning from lean training, Mm. right? To me, lean learning, you know, may or may not include lean training. Right. But mm-hmm. it certainly includes practice. Mm-hmm. And it probably yeah. includes coaching. Yeah. Right? yeah. Hopefully. Because yeah. as as you used use the word muscle memory, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when we talk about just problem solving as one one element, right? Well, you know, just the instinct or intuition of, you know, when do I expand my problem and look bigger and when do I focus mm-hmm. it and narrow mm-hmm. down? And yeah. you know, when 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 do I know enough about current reality and, and when do I need to study it harder? That that comes with that muscle memory, mm-hmm. and it requires repetition and practice and and coaching. So that's why you know I, I really harp on the term lean learning because it's like okay, well, how are you going to go about learning, mm-hmm. and what are all those mechanisms? And training might be an yeah. input to that, right? But when I ask an organization about their lean learning strategy, they will show me their lean training strategy. Mm-hmm. And they're not synonyms. It's
0: possible to learn without training. Yes. Right. So there is the, we're going to learn by doing school of thought, whether that's, I I would argue that shouldn't be only Kaizen events, Mm -hmm. but let's, let's learn by doing. It's possible to learn without training. Unfortunately, it's also possible to sit through training without learning. Yes. (laughs) And we've heard all kinds of situations like in healthcare, people will complain about the electronic medical record system let's say it's hard to use and let's say maybe the training was really dull and unengaging and the organization says well we trained you mm-hmm. without thinking of the lessons from uh, let's say training within industry that a lot of our listeners might know of right um you know this idea that you know you need to confirm that the knowledge was actually transferred and that it sunk in you you can't just assume i talked at you therefore you learned mm-hmm. you, you you've got a uh,
1: kind of test that hypothesis that the training was effective and, and that le- leads me to a bias of mine that's that's shifted over time and and that is i mean i used to be a a strong advocate of of simulation and case studies and mm-hmm. and and I, and I and i still love those right i think they're great and i i designed so many i i don't want to say so many simulations i can't count them but more than i can actually remember. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes i'll i'll recall, oh yeah, i remember that now. Um but but i i you know, s- to me simulations is not they make it fun, they help with some of the application, but they aren't real enough to really ensure that you know what you're talking about, right? A- and so, you know, i don't do a lot of this. A lot of what i do now is more coaching, but i do mm-hmm. do some workshops and and I, and I kind of insist that the application be real. Like, okay, yep. even if we have to slow it down, even if we have to, uh, you know, give you more space or time, more coaching, whatever, whatever it's going to take, I would rather you try to do it for real. Mm-hmm. And then let's see if you got it and see what questions you have. Then do it in a simulation. We declare success, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you go off into the real world and struggle like hell. And, and and so I, you know, to me, my my bias has shifted now. Um, again, I'm not I'm not running any workshops that are, are are scaled across a large organization. It's just this is just what I do with my time, and, and so I get to set different rules for that. But but it, it is a reinforcement of the, the 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 learning is what matters. There's many tools in the learning strategy, and training is a guarantee of nothing.
0: You could maybe also say, I mean, the, le- the learning matters a lot, but then how much did the application and the results matter? Because mm-hmm. I, you know, I think of the last manufacturing company um, I worked for was really proud of how many people they had put through greenbelt training. I may have told the story before here. I know I've told it other places, but let's say they had trained and certified approximately 500 people. Okay, they had learned something, and better yet, it wasn't just classroom book knowledge. They all had to do a project that was mentored by a black belt. It was pretty rigorous. But then, what? To what benefit? Um, I, I do remember quite clearly if you know, 500 people had gotten certified. The total number of green belt projects ever completed was something like 506. Because <laughs> right. people got their certification, and the organization was not encouraging. More projects, it was not giving them time to do it. And so then you step back and say, well, okay, I'm sure there was some business benefit to those 500 projects. And thank goodness, six of them figured out how to do a second project, or maybe one person did five more projects. And then they may have left and become a Six Sigma consultant. But yeah, what a shame if people are not able to apply the learning in a way that strengthens and reinforces the learning and has benefit to the organization.
1: Yeah, and that and that really you know r- really reinforces the point is you have to, you have to understand what's going to come after the training, right? Yeah. Is it is it in, a requirement for application? Is it coaching? Is it more training? Are they plugging into a mature system? Yeah. Where it's naturally going to happen, or mm. are you just hoping it happens? Right. Right. So you really have to understand what 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 is true for the for the. The graduate <laughs> for the yeah. Lean 101 training recipient the minute after they leave. I
0: going mean, to bring it back to driving and thinking about like purpose and what you're moving along for um, and what you're moving toward. We, we've probably all seen videos of online of somebody driving a $200,000 supercar who drives it badly and wrecks it. Mm-hmm. That's probably not the first car you should ever learn how to drive on right so how often with lean training are we asking people to drive a Ferrari
1: mm-hmm.
0: before they've learned how to drive uh, it was what the AMC Eagle the AMC Eagle or an Oldsmobile <laughs> Cutlass right or you know there, you know, gosh there was n- n- again like that Cutlass same thing it was a big huge heavy car there's no way I could have I don't know if it exceeded the speed limit <laughs> even if it was 55 at the time it was a chore um, the car told you
1: you shouldn't be driving this fast right <laughs> Yeah, it gave you some feedback. So, so I don't know if we've answered you know the question, what should Lean one hundred and one training look like? But I, I think we've we've concluded a few key points, right? Uh, you, you be user centered, right? Yep. User centric, design with the user in mind. Understand where you are a, as an organization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Understand where the student is as a student. Yeah. Um, yep. Set them up for what happens next, and uh, don't don't design you know don't design your training to be about sharing everything you know, right. uh, uh, patting your ego or believing that everybody needs to be as passionate as you do. yeah
0: yeah, you can't expect that to happen immediately, right They're not going to come out of the book learning classroom training with that passion. They may develop that passion once they go and do some really cool stuff, right that they're proud of in action that makes the organization better. Um, but I'm going to share one, one, one thought. And this is the point in the podcast where I you know, feel like uh, this could be the whiskey talking, <laughs> but uh, I had a thought, this may or may not be clever. So we probably all know the, the joke or the parable or people post on social media. Um, you know, uh, the CFO asks, what happens if we train our people and they leave and then somebody, whoever the hero of the story, whatever their role might be, what if we don't train them and they stay? Okay, fair enough, good point. But maybe there's a third uh, possibility there. What if we train them and don't let them do anything with the training? Yes. Well, then they might leave. So maybe that's back to the first point. It, it or
1: it, it's just a waste of money. It might Sorry. be. No, no, but I. I so I, I do think that that quote is uh, is is credited to Zig Ziglar. Okay. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think <laughs> it is. So we can right. fact check that. Yeah. But, but I think that is, that, is, that is an important question, which is what will be true when they're done? And, and I remember an organization that, that asked me to look at their lean training. And I was like, they were asking, well, is it, is it good? I'm like, yeah, it's great. But what, what happens when they graduate from it, they're going to expect help, right? They're going to want to go do stuff. Yeah. You've gotten them excited. They want to go do stuff. And you have like one coach. And so I think it is. It's you have to be careful about spending too much time getting people excited about something, mm-hmm. and yep. then telling them they can't use it the right. next day, or tell them to go use it. Without
0: training, and it's the equivalent of uh, running the car into a telephone pole. Yeah. They might not literally hurt themselves, but they might be scared off from ever trying again. Certainly could be frustrating. If they, if they had a bad experience or people got angry with them. Yep. Because let's say we taught them lean tools, but we never had a discussion about change management. Yep. Exactly. And they're a bull in the china shop, and they go out and do 5S2 people. Mm-hmm and now they think okay well uh, we tried lean here and it didn't work as an individual or as a company yep. i think there's there's a real risk of that if um if we're not giving them that coaching and
1: mentorship along the way yeah, yeah. so don't don't launch a lean 101 strategy without a full lean strategy knowing what else you're sending people into uh, as they come out of it so yeah uh key key lesson learned yes
0: and we're we're speaking from experience from having made some or all of these mistakes.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, I'll speak for myself. I, I've never, I've never actually, in, until I was, you know, I'll say a consultant and, and observing other people's training. I didn't learn any of this through a classroom, mm-hmm. right? I didn't take lean training. There, yeah. w- there wasn't Chrysler lean wasn't
0: training. doing lean one oh one training you were
1: just doing stuff i helped design it right? <laughs> <laughs> like i yeah i helped put together you know, chrysler operating system course number one mm-hmm. right and helped deliver that very first session uh, with our lego simulations where we built jeeps and uh so so you know, i drove around to kmarts buying jeep lego kits to build out simulations so yeah that was there was there was nothing to go take we were designing some of our first training so uh so yeah, we, we, we've along the way we've we've experienced many of these mistakes one one way or the other, and yeah. and we're behind many of them. So yeah. Okay. All right. Good topic.
0: Good topic. I'll be curious to hear listener feedback, or I'm curious what you think, Jamie. Is it easier? Is it better? Is this a better podcast doing it in person without the Zoom stuff in in between?
1: Yeah, we'll see. Obviously, we we didn't video record this, so so for anybody that's used to watching it on YouTube, they'll just miss out on on this uh, this episode, and that's yeah. that's too bad. But uh, but curious. But again, we've said this before. We do this kind of for us, <laughs> yeah. And we hope our listeners like it too. <laughs> yeah. So so this was definitely good for me. Yeah. Um, uh, just a chance to, to be in person again for, for the first time in quite a while. Yeah, so. to be across the table. I can't resize your head by
0: clicking and dragging on the window. No. Not no. saying your head needs to be resized. But no. Just, we also can't mute each other. Right? <laughs> I mean, we can't, can't do that either. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at notes on uh, my iPad. I'm also not being distracted by my iPhone or anything else that's beeping or yep. there on a computer. So.
1: Nothing else other than you know getting here and, and getting home. So
0: Yeah and uh so we'll we'll end with a, as we normally do closing fun question Philadelphia version maybe um you you've probably been here a, a lot, Jamie. what would you say is is the best thing or something that's really cool about philadelphia
1: yeah so so, and I don't get here as often as I should as close as it is, and yeah. that's not just a pandemic story that's a <laughs> that that's a perpetual story, busy family story busy family, my own travel, at least in the past and 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 you kind of you, you, if you're going to drive an hour and a half into the city and you, you need a plan, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but but to me the the history of the city, as it reflects in in some of its monuments, but also some of its museums, mm-hmm. is is tremendous. Even some of the lesser known museums where you you you, you get around and get connected to the history, um, are, are fantastic. You know, it obviously had a huge part of our. Are, are the founding of our, our country, yeah, and, and even even the, the Franklin, of course, Benjamin Franklin. The, the scientific museum, the Franklin Institute, I think oh, wow. it's called, yeah, is super cool museum. Yeah, uh, really, really neat. You know, it has nothing to do with the Revolutionary War, but it does have to do with you know Benjamin Franklin, where it gets his name. So I, I do think the you know I, I don't spend a lot of time going to museums, but I do always appreciate when I do, and the museum mm-hmm. scene here is, is yeah. pretty solid. I need to figure out a way to check that out because I'm 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 busy
0: with a client during the day. Um, you know, there is so much history here. I was staying uh, at a different hotel um, in my first couple of weeks here, and between that hotel and the hospital, I was quite literally walking past the Liberty Bell in Independence Hall every single day. Yeah, and, and that's very cool to see. You know, walking back. From, so I've gotten to explore restaurants mm-hmm. after work. Uh, it's a great food city here, but then like walking back from a restaurant and walking past the Liberty Bell at night and you can see it through glass from the sidewalk and mm-hmm. the way it's lit and the way it's, it's, it's situated, um, it was very cool. And I was a kid, I remember visiting the Liberty Bell, I believe it was under just a covering structure and pretty much like exposed to the elements. And yeah, I think at I think some it was, point yeah. through a restoration and through some fundraising, they realized we should probably protect <laughs> it a little bit better. Um, from the weather or crazy people or what have you but that that's really unique and then i also love the 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 little details in fact i I posted a picture on instagram this morning um given the chance i will kind of weave my way through the different little side streets instead of taking the more direct Mm -hmm. route to the hospital because it reminds me of boston there were some of these little i call them tiny streets right where you could not drive a car down them. Right. The homes are are separated by um, a path wide enough, maybe for a horse, and you know the, 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 these old historic homes that date back a couple hundred years. And between the architecture and the streets, I'm enjoying that. And then you know it, it is a really good food city. So um, the the you know if you if you love sushi, the original flagship Morimoto. Sushi restaurant, Japanese restaurant is actually here in Philadelphia, which surprised me. I'd, okay. I'd eaten at the one in New York city and, um, chef Morimoto actually started here. And then Jamie and I, um, tonight after the podcast here, we're going to, uh, a, a place I really like. It's more of a modern Japanese, i call it Japanese style. Restaurant. Okay. Uh, it's a little bit more, uh, I don't know, fusion y or just kind of want to take. A place called Double Knot that I like a lot. So, between that and, and there's, there's a restaurant here called Zahav, uh, Israeli restaurant, Israeli mm. chef, Middle Eastern food, mm-hmm. um, has been on the number one restaurant in the country list at least a couple of times. Yes. And when I was working here in 2019, I was able to get out of work early enough to go stand in line you can't get a reservation there okay yeah uh, but if you show up early enough they've got some limited seating and i somebody here uh a local uh, told me philadelphia has more restaurants per capita than new york city huh did not and know that there are some really good interesting restaurants here
1: now another place you can't get a reservation is Geno's and pat's uh <laughs> that's just because you stand in you line stand and in get line. a cheese steak but uh yeah but yes, it's uh, and and you know, unfortunately, I've I've never really experienced the food scene here quite a bit because when I would come down, it would usually be with usually either for a morning meeting uh, or uh, with family, and and we're we're generally not out exploring yep. the, the higher end restaurants. Yep. So, um, uh, so so yeah. But that's that's pretty neat to need to know some of that. I, I never knew it had. I knew it had good restaurants, mm-hmm. and never knew it had more. More yep. restaurants, yeah, per capita. So I'm, so, so
0: I'm getting my restaurants, but thankfully my hotel's about a 20 minute walk from the hospital. So the uh, the, the one thing I love about having a client in a city like this is uh, not needing a rental car. Yeah, and I can walk. And if the weather's bad, I'll take an Uber.
1: Yeah, not bad at all. Fantastic. So uh, yeah, a chance to be together in person. Yeah, chance to try some one off uh, Garrison Brothers uh, special special edition um chance to talk lean 101 so cheers to cheers to all of that cheers to that and um yeah so if, if you want to follow us uh and and make sure you pay attention to the podcast you can can always find more uh, as i said this is episode 33 so you can go to lean uh spelled either k-e-y or k-y either either version is mm-hmm. fine um you can you can find us at, at jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey or for Mark. You, you can, and the leanwhiskey.com,
0: I feel like this is uh, selfish of me. I'm hogging the URL. The leanwhiskey.com URL forwards to leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. Um, but, you know, if, if this is your first time listening and you're listening, let's say, through either of our websites, you can find us, you can subscribe, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, kind of all, the usual places you might find a podcast
1: yeah so you know give us a listen uh share with your friends um give us some feedback and you know let us know let us know what you think ask us questions things that you'd like to hear us talk about in in future episodes and uh, always always looking for fresh ideas and so we appreciate we appreciate everyone and you know to getting together you know cheers cheers let, let's let's see what it sounds like to uh, clink of glass
0: in person. In person. We'll see whose microphone picked that up. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jamie. Thank you.